so no pressure there then. <laughs> <laughs> like Andy, I, I too uh, would like to, to say happy night after the night before. It's not often that in LGBT History Month we actually get to participate in history being made. I'll be completely honest with you, when the whole issue of, of equal marriage was first mooted a couple of years back as a serious ongoing campaign for now, I wasn't entirely sure that I wanted to be married. I had been very happy when the whole civil partnership thing came in because it seemed to me that by giving us something that wasn't called marriage. We avoided all the history bound up in that word, the patriarchal history, the sense of marriage as ownership of women, all of those, all of the baggage that came with marriage, if you like, it seemed to me that we were avoiding by having civil partnership. But the more I listened to the arguments and the more I understood what people were asking for and why people were asking for this, the more I came round to understanding the importance of it. I don't know how closely you followed the debate last night, but certainly one of the most moving things I thought was David Lammy talking from the perspective of a black man about how it is impossible to have separate but equal development. And I was listening to that, I was thinking how extraordinarily far we have come in the 40 years since I first came to St Hilda's and how unbelievable that would have seemed back in 1972 when I came here as an undergraduate. The notion that uh, we'd, also, we'd have all the kinds of legislation enacted that we've had in recent years, but ultimately that we would be able to get married just seemed an insane idea. But this now feels like one of the last pieces in a jigsaw puzzle, a complicated jigsaw puzzle, and one of those annoying ones that doesn't have a picture on the box. <laughs> so you're continually fumbling around trying to figure out which bit goes where. But I very much feel that we're close now to completing a picture of that jigsaw, a picture where we will be regarded in this society as full and equal members, as good as anyone else. And surely, I think that's what we all aimed for, what we all hoped for, and, and in my case, certainly never quite believed could happen. One of the things I enjoy most in the course of every year is to, to go to the Stonewall Equality Dinner. Um, it's in the Dorchester, in the ballroom at the Dorchester, and the ballroom at the Dorchester is full of queers. <laughs> Guys looking wonderful in their tuxedos, some of them in their kilts. Women in, in beautiful gowns and dresses, and some of them in beautiful tuxedos as well. But what I love is that here we are, we have taken over the bastion at the heart of the establishment. We're in bloody Park Lane, for heaven's sake. <laughs> Just being ourselves and celebrating that we have come this far. And so that, I think, has, has been, this has been, a, for, for me anyway, a, a time of, I think, great excitement and great joy. But it wasn't always thus. I grew up in Scotland, uh, as you can probably tell. Uh, I, I was born in 1955, so I did most of my growing up in the 1960s and the early 70s. And when I grew up, there were no lesbians. None, not one. <laughs> wasn't a single lesbian in Scotland, as far as I was aware. <laughs> there were no lesbians visible, certainly. There were no lesbian novels, there were no lesbians in movies, there were no lesbians on the soap, there were no lesbian tennis stars. I know you'll find that hard to believe. <laughs> um, you know, I would sit there and, and, and watch, you know, Pam Shriver and Betty Stove and think, they look a bit different, but I don't know quite what it is. 
We had heard that there were people who were different. We'd heard there were these things called lezzies, but nobody had ever actually met one. Sometimes you met somebody whose cousin's cousin had a friend who was one, but you never actually met one as such. Now, we knew there were poofs, because you saw them on the television from time to time. Larry Grayson, John Inman, we understood about them, but there were no lesbians, absolutely none. So I grew up really um, not understanding uh, why I felt different. I thought I felt different because I wanted to be a writer. And that was an ambition that had, uh, had formed in me at a very early age. Um, I grew up in a very working class background. There was not much money, and there certainly wasn't money for books, which were a luxury that we couldn't afford. But I was very lucky when I, when I was six years old, my parents moved house to uh, live opposite the central library. And that became my home from home. That became my haven. That became the place where I discovered the world. And from that base, uh, I, I suppose I, I, I learned that there was a wider world out there, but what I really learned was that people actually wrote those books. It didn't just appear by magic. And it was a job that you got paid money for. It wasn't something that people did out of the goodness of their heart, you know, write books so that people could read them and enjoy them. And so from a very early age, I formulated the notion that I would like to be a writer. And I thought that's what made me different. I thought that's what set me apart. I think for teenage girls, for adolescent girls, Sometimes it's very difficult in a world where there are no visible lesbians to identify your sexuality because I think for most adolescent girls, the heart of your emotional life is your female friendships. You have your best pal, you have your other close pals, and that's the ones with whom you share your emotional reality. You might go out with lads on a Saturday night, but it's not real until you talk about it in double Latin on Monday morning. Girls have very passionate and very emotional friendships in their teens. And if you don't have another box to put that in, you just think you're like everybody else and you just don't, it's one of those things you don't really talk about, you know, like periods. You have these strong emotional attachments, but it's just like everybody else. And so I grew up really uh, feeling different, but not understanding where that difference lay. There were no templates for any other kind of life. Why would I think differently? I did discover towards the end of my, my, my school career a, a book called The Well of Loneliness. <laughs> now, I, I read this book because at that stage of my life I was reading everything that crossed my path. And I thought, well, I, thought, I don't want to wear men's suits, I don't want to be called Stephen, and I don't want to kill myself. <laughs> so, obviously I can't be a lesbian. <laughs> and, as I say, I, 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 I think that uh, at the heart of, of my, my teenage years, uh, there was a loneliness. I had lots of friends, but I always felt, as I say, I felt different, I felt separate. And I thought this was somehow the thing that you needed to do to be a writer. You had to have that detachment, that, that separation. So I was okay with that. Uh, and, I, and I came to Oxford, uh, and uh, I did what everybody else does at Oxford. I, I, I got drunk and I went to tutorials. Um, and, and, and I danced the night away, and I had boyfriends, and um, again, I, I felt that my life was, was kind of like um, that, that Peggy Lee song, you know, is that all there is? Um, you know, I went out with boys, I even slept with them, um, and always at the heart of it was like, you know, well, is that what all the fuss was about? I mean, really, is that what all the fuss was about? And I was in my, my second year at Oxford, uh, 
when I read a book called Sexual Politics by Kate Millett. And this is a book of essentially of literary criticism. But for someone who was in the middle of an English course at St Hilda's, at a time when the English course was very much a traditional course rooted in Anglo-Saxon Middle English, and where modern English literature ended in 1945, uh, this book was a revelation to me. It was the first book of feminist criticism I had ever seen. And I devoured this. It was, it was as if I was a sort of walking through a desert and suddenly I had found an oasis. I devoured this book over the course of the weekend and I was on fire. I was so excited. I had discovered feminism. And I remember going to my tutorial with Anne Elliott, who was, I don't know if any of you remember Anne Elliott, but Anne Elliott was very proper, very polite, very quiet, very calm, a good Christian, a good woman, and a good tutor. Um, very, very traditional. Uh, and I burst into my tutorial, absolutely full of myself, and I just ranted for 10 minutes about the glories of sexual politics by Kate Millett. I talked about what I'd learned about the explosion inside my head, about how excited I was, about how this had revolutionized the way I thought about English literature. And Anne Elliott sat quietly nodding through all this tirade, and, she, and I eventually stopped for breath, and she said, ah yes, dear Kate, Dear Kate, what do you mean, dear Kate? And she says, I supervised her PhD thesis that became <laughs> sexual politics. And I was just so completely gobsmacked that even in this one revelatory thing, Oxford had got there ahead of me. <laughs> but the thing about discovering Kate Millett and discovering feminist criticism, that this led me into the arms of the feminists. And at the time, in the early 1970s, being led into the arms of the feminists inevitably meant being led into the arms of the lesbians. Now, I still wasn't sure about the lesbians. Um, I just wasn't sure about this at all. It just seemed something that was just that little step too far, that little step beyond the world that I really understood. Um, apart from the fact that they were lesbians, they were very, very different from me. They were very different from my experience of the world, they were English for a start. Um, and, and, and they were middle class. Uh, and they talked about uh, relationships in terms of entirely of politics and not about emotions, really. And I found that a bit strange and I found, I found it a bit hard to get my head round. Um, and so I kind of hung back and I carried on reading and I carried on trying to, to do my coursework and trying to make the first steps towards becoming a writer. Um, and eventually what happened to me was what happens to all of us in the fullness of time. I fell head over heels in love with someone who fell head over heels in love with me. And that was that then. I'm a lesbian now, that's fine. <laughs> um, I was 19. I was in my final year at St Hilda's and it was not uh, an easy path to tread at that particular point for all sorts of reasons. Uh, but it was for me an absolute revelation. It, it changed my life. There was no turning back from that point. For the first time, really, I think in my life, I knew who I was. And for me, that meant that it opened up the door to being possibly the kind of writer I could be. It informed, I suppose, my whole idea of the world. And I didn't care if it was going to be difficult. I didn't really, I mean, I was young and stupid, you know. 
I didn't care how difficult it was going to be because I was, I was, you know, I was going to be heroic and idealistic and all of those things. Um, I just knew that I was who I was and I could not live in denial of that. Um, when I left Oxford, I went off to work uh, in that natural home for a radical lesbian feminist, tabloid journalism. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I got my first job working for Mirror Group Training Scheme down in Devon where they had a, a group of weekly newspapers. Um, and uh, I have to say that in terms of being a, a feminist, never mind a lesbian, you know, Plymouth was about the last place on the planet to be. <laughs> um, you know, I was desperately looking for other lesbians at this point. You know, I was 20. I was like, you know, I was, I was up for it, you know. And I, I eventually found that there was a, 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 a supposedly a gay pub. I went along to this gay pub one Wednesday night, which was the gay night. Uh, and I was the only woman in the place. And all, I mean, the guys were really nice and really friendly, but they weren't women. <laughs> It wasn't, it wasn't a time where I think it was very uh, easy to meet other women, uh, unless you happened to be in London, where I think it was a wee bit easier. Um, but out in the sticks, it, it, wasn't, uh, it wasn't a simple and straightforward process. So I suppose I was pouring a lot of, a lot of my energies into uh, attempting to write. And uh, I suppose because I had just finished my degree at Oxford, I had decided I was going to write literary fiction. I was going to be a great English novelist. Never mind that I was Scottish, I was still going to be a great English novelist. <laughs> and I thought that as you do at 20, you know the secrets of the universe, you know, nobody can tell you anything when you're 20, can they? So I wrote this, this great novel uh, about life. And it was full of all the big emotions, you know, love, and hate, and jealousy, and, 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 and betrayal, and, 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 and rage, and despair, and punting. <laughs> um, and believe me, if you'd ever gone past St Hilda's in those days before they dredged the bottom, you'd know how desperate that could be. <laughs> and I, I, I finished this book. It's about the only thing I can say in its, its favour. I actually finished it. Um, and I started sending it off to uh, publishers in London. It was, it was, of course, a lesbian novel, because that was the other thing I was going to write, the great literary lesbian novel. Um, couldn't wait for Sarah Waters to come along, you know, to get stuck <laughs> right in there. Um, so I sent this off to, to many publishers, you know, and, and people often tell you about you know, their first experiences of trying to get published and send books off to publishers and wait for weeks and weeks, and eventually it comes back with you know, a polite letter explaining the reasons why it doesn't fit their list right now. And this wasn't what happened to me. My book used to come back by return of post. <laughs> I, I I think I sent it to just about every publishing house in, in London. Um, I think by the end I was getting letters from people I hadn't actually sent it to. Um, we've heard about this book, please don't send it to us. Um, but I was undaunted. I was undaunted, you know, I was, I was determined. I was sort of by, by this time starting to, to write my, my second great English novel. Um, and that was a lesbian novel as well. I mean, if you can cast your mind back to, to 1975, there weren't a lot of lesbian novels being published, full stop. And those that were being published were being tending to be published by small feminist publishing houses run by two women in North London. Um, and it didn't even occur to me to send it to them. <laughs> but uh, but I, did, I did show it to a friend of mine who's an actor. And um, she, she looked at this, and, and to this day she won't admit whether uh, she was diplomatic or, or, or telling me the truth. But she said, 
I don't know much about novels, but I think this would make a good play. So I thought, that's easy. Just cross out all the descriptions, leave in the speaky bits, it's a play! <laughs> and so I, that's essentially what I did. I went through, I, I, I left the dialogue, I, I crossed out all the descriptions, I, I wrote a few extra scenes to cover the bits I'd crossed out, and, and it was a play. And I, I trotted off to the, the local theatre company uh, down in, in Plymouth, where I was, uh, uh, I'd, I wasn't working there anymore, but I was working in Exeter by then. Um, took this off to the local theatre, and I had an in with the local theatre company because the director of the local theatre was the ex-boyfriend of my best friend at Oxford's sister. <laughs> so obviously you, know, you, have to, you have to use the old pals act, you know. So at least I got, I got him to look at it. Um, and he said, this is marvellous. I love this. I'm, I want to do a season of new plays in the studio theatre and this is perfect. So by the age of 23, completely accidentally, I was a professionally performed playwright with a lesbian play. Um, I was later commissioned to adapt this play for BBC Radio, and you wouldn't believe the trouble that caused. It ended up, it was originally commissioned by Radio 3. Radio 3 got cold feet because it was a lesbian play. Um, then Radio 4 expressed an interest, and they eventually decided not to do it because it was about lesbians. And it eventually ended up bizarrely being broadcast on Radio Scotland. <laughs> Not, you would imagine, the natural home of a lesbian play in 1983, I think it was. Um, but I think it was just because the guy who produced the play uh, was on staff at Radio Scotland and they were short of a play one week and he stuck it in there. Um, I, of course, thought this was the start of a brilliant career as a playwright, that any minute now Hollywood would be knocking at the door that I was going to be the new Harold Pinter or the new Tom Stoppard. But it didn't work out quite like that. Um, I think the problem for me really was that I didn't know what I'd done right so I couldn't replicate it. I kept trying to write plays and they were terrible. Truly, truly terrible plays. Most of them weren't even lesbian plays. <laughs> but I couldn't get another one performed anywhere. Um, and eventually I reached the point where the agent I had acquired uh, when my first play was professionally performed uh, sent me a letter that began, Dear Val McDermott. Now you know that's not going to be a good letter, don't you? <laughs> and it wasn't a good letter. It was the one that went, we are, we are cutting back on our list and you are cut back. <laughs> and so this was, was for me, was, was really the lowest point of my, my writing career. I was, however, at this time, gainfully employed as a tabloid hack. I had gone into tabloid journalism uh, with a very strong political idealism. Uh, I grew up, as I said, in, in, in a working class background in Scotland. And I felt very strongly that working class people had a right to media that were intelligent and informative as well as entertaining. And I believed that that's what the role of tabloid journalism should be, and that's why I went into tabloid journalism. I started, as I said, in, in a, a trainee journalist in Devon on weekly papers. Then I moved to the Daily Record in Glasgow, which was the paper I had grown up reading in my parents' house, which was, in those days, a pretty decent newspaper still. It actually reported uh, the news, uh, <laughs> oddly enough. Uh, if you read tabloids these days, you'll know that is quite a rarity. And I later went on to work in, in, in Manchester for The People. Again, when I went to The People, it was, a, it was a powerful tabloid newspaper 
We did a lot of investigative journalism. We did a lot of human interest stories. And it was only really in, in the mid-1980s that we started our, uh, our irreversible slide into the gutter, uh, where it became uh, a tabloid rag like the rest of them that was only interested in the sex lives of soap stars and photographs of people in their underwear. That when you were out doing a story, you'd get questions from the news desk like, but what underwear was she wearing? You're like, her son's just died. I mean, it was, it was on that level, believe me. Um, and I, I, I was sort of like living these, these two lives in parallel, if you like. I was living this life of I want to be a proper writer and this life as a tabloid journalism where I was very successful. Um, I was continually being approached, uh, tapped up to come to London. I always said no because I didn't want to go to London. Why would I want to go there? It's much nicer outside London. You go out into the countryside, you get to meet people. It's nice. Um, but uh, also, uh, I think what I had, by that stage, I had done was I'd carved out a niche, I suppose, of some kind of respect amongst my colleagues. Uh, I had never uh, been in the closet in that sense when I went into tabloid journalism. I didn't walk in with a T-shirt emblazoned with, I am a lesbian. Um, but equally, if people asked me the question, I didn't deny it. I was determined not to live half a life. I'd seen the lives of people that I'd grown up with um, where they were in denial, sometimes to themselves, but always to the people around them about their true selves. And it seemed to me that what they were living was half a life. I was not prepared to do that. It always seemed to me that the price of doing that was much higher than the price of doing something else. And, you know, I will say that I, I, I still go back a lot to the town where I grew up. I have strong roots there, strong connections there. And I still know people that I went to school with who I know are gay and who are in the closet still all these years later. And I count among them someone who was a very close friend of my teens who even stayed in the closet when her teenage daughter came out to me. And I was the person who guided her teenage daughter through being a lesbian in a small town in Scotland in the 1980s because her mother was too frightened to come out even to her own daughter. And I, I just don't understand that mindset. I just don't understand the need to be like that in the 21st century. It's such an impoverishing way of life. And it makes me so sad. And it makes me, it makes me glad that I chose the route that I chose because although it's been difficult at times, there were times working as the, the only lesbian tabloid journalist in the country who was out. I knew of at least two others, but they were very far in the closet. I mean, they were practically in Narnia. <laughs> uh, and yeah, what I'm, what I'm, I'm not, I'm not claiming any great bravery for myself. What I'm actually claiming for myself, I think, is a, is a greater sense of fear. The fear of what it would do not to be honest about my life, the fear of what it would do to me to continually live a lie. <coughs> I didn't want to live like that. I couldn't live like that. Um, and so I, I, I went forward, as it were, taking the knocks, but, but at least being you know, willing to try. Um, I was very involved in, in the trade union, National Union of Journalists, uh, 
I was involved with the, the Union Equality Council, but I was also involved as a nego negotiator for my chapel, um, the, the journalist that I, I worked with, I represented. And that also taught me a lot about the whole art of, of negotiating your way through the complicated shoals of difficultness. Um, so once I had realised I wasn't going to be a playwright, I had to figure out what kind of writer I was going to be. And it seemed to me that where I had gone wrong was not understanding what I was doing. So it seemed to me, therefore, that I ought to try and do something that I did understand. And I had always read a lot of crime fiction. Uh, I devoured it alongside everything else that I was reading. And also at this time, I had started reading a lot of lesbian fiction. This was the time when writers like Barbara Wilson and Mary Wings and Catherine Forrest were writing those early lesbian crime fiction. And I started to think that this might be a possible thing that I could do. But the book that finally catapulted me to get off my backside and do it wasn't one of the lesbian writers. It was actually Sarah Paretsky, Sarah Paretsky's first novel, Indemnity Only, which I found an electrifying read. I loved it because at the heart of this book, there was a female protagonist who had a brain and a sense of humor. Um, I loved the fact that they had an urban setting. That seemed to me to be much more realistic and much more in tune with the world I inhabited than the world of, of the English detective novel and that Agatha Christie and, and, and even Ruth Rendell had presented. That was not my world. You know, I, the villages I grew up in did not have retired colonels of the Indian Army. <laughs> um, and so I, I, I loved this, this setting, but what I also loved about it was that these books had politics as well. They had personal politics and they had a wider social politics. And that appealed to me because I suddenly understood that by writing fiction, uh, writing engaging, entertaining fiction that would draw an audience to my books, I could actually explore the things in the world that mattered to me. I could explore issues of gender, I could explore issues of social politics. I could get to grips with all the things that made me rant and rage in the morning when I listened to the radio. Uh, and that I wouldn't be doing this in a sort of didactic way, I would be doing it as part of the fabric of what I was writing. And that's what Paretsky taught me, I think, more than anything, was that you can weave the stuff that you really passionately care about into what you write without going, by the way, and another thing, and by the way, here's another thing to think about. You weave it into the story, you weave it into the lives of your characters, you make it inextricable with what you're writing about, the story that you're telling. And so I sat down to, to write my first attempt at a crime novel. Um, the book that came out of it was a book called Report for Murder, which was published in 1987. Um, and this book uh, was the first British crime novel with an openly lesbian protagonist. Now, when I sat down to write the book, that really wasn't what was in my mind. I wasn't thinking, whoa, whoa, whoa I'm going to break the ground here. I'm going to be the first one to write the lesbian crime novel in the UK. Um, I ended up writing a lesbian crime novel because that was the way she came out. And it never occurred to me that Lindsay Gordon would be anything other than a lesbian. Um, that was the character in my head and that was the way she came out on the page. And uh, for me, growing up without any role models, I felt very passionately that I did not want the next generation of young women coming after me to be growing up in a desert, barren of any kind of lesbian template, any kind of life that was an alternate to the, 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 the heterosexual normative lives on offer. And so 
uh, it's, it seemed perfectly reasonable to me that, that I should write a lesbian central character. If you've read the Lindsay Gordon books, you will know that she's never physically described. I never tell people what Lindsay looks like. And there's a very strong reason for that. I wanted people who read the books to make their own Lindsay. I wanted them to be able to read Lindsay and imagine themselves in her shoes. Imagine on a good day or a bad day, depending on what she was doing at the time, that that was them. They could be that person. Or if they didn't want to be that person, they could be going out with that person <laughs> or staying in with that person. I wanted, I wanted Lindsay to be somebody that could be every woman, that, sh that she could speak to the women out there who up to that point hadn't had somebody speaking to them in fiction. But more than that, I wanted to tell a good story because I did understand that if you don't tell the good story, then everything else is pointless because nobody's going to read past page three. So at the heart of what I was trying to do was, was to tell a story that, that, uh, that spoke to people. When I wrote Report for Murder, again, it was almost as accidental as my first play um, because the book I really wanted to write was the third book in the series. That was the story I really wanted to tell. But I wasn't very sophisticated as a, narr as a narrator. I didn't really know much about how you weave stories together. And I couldn't figure out how to get to the third book without writing the first two. <laughs> now, as it turns out, that was probably quite a good idea because back in those days, the advances you got from feminist publishing houses is, were minuscule. So it was probably as well that I had three books in the end to sell instead of just the one. But uh, I, I wrote this book um, very much with this, this, um, this, this thought of, I know how a crime novel works. And if I make Lindsay Gordon a journalist, I know what journalists do, I know what the possibilities are, I know what the prospects are, I know what the working day is like for a journalist. And if I make her Scottish and lesbian and left-wing and feminist, then that's, that's a bit of a doddle, really, because I know what all those things are. <laughs> um, the downside of that, I suppose, is that this makes people tend to assume that Lindsay Gordon is me. Uh, she's not. In terms of her personality, she's very different from me. Um, but I did use the superficial facts of my life in constructing the character because I didn't know any better. I didn't know any different. I didn't have many, many things in my, school, my toolbox then. I didn't have many skills at my command. Back in the day when I started writing the Lindsay Gordon books, writers had the opportunity to grow and develop. These days, if you've not got a success by your third novel, your history. Now, if I was judged on the sales of my first three novels, I wouldn't have a career today. But luckily in those days, uh, you could take your time to get a bit better and take your time to build an audience. Um, Report for Murder was, was published uh, to a, a resounding silence, I have to say. You, know, you always think when your first novel's published that suddenly everything's going to change. You know, you're going to walk out the front door and everybody's going, there she is, the novelist! <laughs> Um, but when, when Report for Murder came out, it came out as a paperback original, and back in 1987, if you can cast your mind back that far, uh, newspapers only reviewed hardbacks, so the book didn't get reviewed at all. Um, and uh, published by a small publishing house, there was, there was no, no marketing budget behind it. Uh, so Report for Murder, as I say, was published to a, a resounding silence. It astonishes me to this day that anybody actually managed to buy it. Um, but it did sell in, in reasonable numbers and sufficient that uh, they wanted some more of, of Lindsay, thank goodness. Um, 
And I put that mostly down to the success of Sarah Paretsky and Sue Grafton and Barbara Wilson and Mary Wings because they had done well in, in bookshops and UK publishers were desperate and booksellers too were desperate for something that was homegrown that had the same kind of feel. So I, I wrote the second, Lindsay Gordon, and the third one, and I had then achieved what I set out to achieve, which was my, my trilogy. So I'd always known that I was going to write something different after those first three books. The question was, what was it going to be? By that time, uh, I, I, I wanted to develop my, my skills as a writer. I wanted to write different kinds of things. I didn't want to be confined to just writing one kind of book for the rest of my career. And so I, I had to think about what was going to come next. And I ended up writing a series of books with a character called Kate Brannigan, who is a private eye based in Manchester, and she's straight. And there are good reasons for that. The first reason is that I wanted to push myself as a writer. I wanted to see if I could write further away from myself than a character like Lindsay. I wanted to stretch myself and stretch my imagination to try and create something that was beyond my own experience. I also, I'll be honest about it, I wanted to find a mainstream publisher. I wanted to make a living as a writer. I no longer wanted to be a tabloid journalist by that stage. I wanted out of the business, and so it was necessary for me to find a way to support myself, and I wanted to do that writing fiction. The third reason is the subversive reason. I know the way that crime readers read, because I'm a crime reader myself, and I know that when you find a new writer that you like, you go and buy everything they've written, don't you? <laughs> yeah, so I thought, this is a really cunning plan to get all those people who would never buy a lesbian novel to go and buy the Lindsay Gordon books. And it worked, you know, every time a Kate Brannigan novel came out, the Lindsay Gordon sales spiked as well. And the other thing that, uh, that I was, was able to do with the, the Kate Brannigan novels was that, you know, that I gave her a best friend who's a lesbian. All through my books, whatever the central character, whatever the subject I've written about, there have always been gay and lesbian characters as part of the landscape. And that, for me, has been one of the most important things about being a writer of my generation and in my position, is the ability to portray gay and lesbian lives as being part of the landscape, part of the world, part of the community. We're not weirdos in a strange little corner all of our own, doing our laundry in a particularly lesbian way, <laughs> or going round the supermarket in a particularly gay way. <laughs> Most of our lives are just like everybody else's. We put the bins out, you know. We bring the cat in, or the dog. These are our lives, and they are lives that fit in the rich tapestry of the society that we inhabit. I'm not a separatist, I've never been. I don't want to live in a ghetto because it makes it too easy for them to come and find us. <laughs> and so I've never written in a ghetto. And I've always tried to write lives that seem to me to be the lives that, in an, in an ideal world in a way, we'd all like to live. Lives where it doesn't matter who you sleep with. That at the end of the day, what matters is your humanity. The way you live as a human being the way you live in terms of your integrity, the way you live in relation to your family, to your friends, to the wider community that you inhabit. And you know, we're, we're all celebrating this week, and rightly so, because where we have got to is an amazing place, and it's an exciting place. My, my, my wife, I call her my wife, although she's my civil partner, and I'm, but I'm not always civil, I have to say. <laughs> um, 
it was, she, was, she was talking to me just before I came out here tonight, and she said, honey, she said, is this the last thing? I said, what do you mean? She said, well, you know, there were all those people, you know, who were like getting their relationship blessed. She's American, by the way. <laughs> there were all those people getting their relationships blessed before we could like have any kind of formal commitment. She said, and then they had to go and like have a civil partnership. And now they're going to have to have the civil partnership converted to a marriage. Is this the last thing or are we going to have to do some more? <laughs> I said, I think it's the last thing. I can't think of anything else unless you want to divorce me. But I think what we also have to remember in this time of celebration is there are many places in the world where being gay is no cause for celebration. There are still a remarkable number of countries where it's a capital offence to be open about what we have been able to take for granted. In my lifetime, we have seen remarkable changes in this country. We have seen for men, going from being criminals to being able to marry each other. We have seen changes in the social fabric where it's no longer acceptable to insult us in the street. We have lives that although they're not always perfect, and if you live outside one of the big cities, they're so often very difficult. But we have lives where, you know, it's an awful lot better than it used to be and I think that now we've got this far, uh, I would like to think that we can turn some of our campaigning energies into places where it's not as easy for, uh, for other people as it is for us. And some of those places are practically on our doorstep. Some of them are places where you know, we're going to be playing football shortly. Um, and I think that uh, what I would like, like to do is in, in the coming years is to focus some of my energies on, on trying to make things better for people in places where frankly, it's shit. Because we've come a long way and you know, we can celebrate, but we need to share that celebration so that other people can, can be who they are without being afraid that it's going to cost them their lives. I feel I have had a very, very fortunate life. I do the one thing in the world I ever wanted to do and they pay me money for it. I live with a woman that I love. We have a son. We have a dog. Really, uh, I feel very blessed. I feel very content, though not complacent. And I would like to, to spread that and share that. One of the things that I am involved with is, is uh, football. I am the director of Wraith Rovers Football Club. And one of the things that we're working with is campaign against homophobia in sport in general, but in football in particular. And although we've come a long, long way, there's still battles to be fought. And in the moment of celebration, I would like to think a little bit about the ways that we can maybe help to support other people when they're fighting their battles. I just want to leave that little thought with you to cheer you all up. <laughs> so I have, I have talked at you, I think, probably for quite long enough, and I'm told that uh, the intent is that there should be, I suppose you'd have to call it an LGBTQ and a <laughs> <laughs> And this is the point where I'm going to be assisted by the Pro Vice Chancellor here. Thank you.